As you're taking your seat, you can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are up at the front here, and they're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. Um, We we love the Bible here. We typically, um, almost always, preach through books of the Bible. So if you're new here, uh, you just need to know we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and uh, we are picking up in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read a chunk today of Scripture. We'll move through it as we go through the message, but I want to kind of prepare us to receive from the Lord. And I was thinking a little bit uh, this week in light of our text, there's uh, a little while ago, I'm not sure how many years ago now, but somebody I believe wrote a book, um, and I think there's even a song from what I understand. It's called uh, Dare to Be a Daniel. Anybody hear that? Yeah, yeah, okay, there's a few people. Okay, so there's, either way, it was a phrase that was kind of floating around, particularly in, in Christian circles, and I assume um, the intent was to challenge people to be uh, like Daniel. Makes sense, right? Daniel, I, I think for good reason, is picked up as a person to emulate from the scriptures. You see, in the midst of Babylon, Daniel stood out for his righteousness. He was a man who refused to compromise in the face of all kinds of cultural pressure to conform to the religion of the day and to rebel against the God of the Bible, but Daniel stood firm. He refused to bow the knee. In fact, in the midst of Israel's rebellion and wickedness, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 14, as he's rebuking the people of God, he actually picks out three individuals from the Old Testament, and he holds them up as as pillars and examples of the faith, and and, and he, he chooses these three people, okay? He chooses Daniel, Job, and Noah. And and he rebukes the people of Israel in their wickedness by saying this, listen, if these three men were here, they would be the only ones who would be saved because of their righteous lives. Nobody else would be saved. Everybody else would be condemned. And so they're held up as these towering figures in the scriptures. And if you know your Bible, you know that both Daniel and Job, they get a lot of airtime, right? They got books titled after them, long books in the case of Job. But Noah, he doesn't get nearly the airtime or page count, if you want to be more accurate. But he does stand out from our text today. In fact, the section here that we're looking at, beginning in verse 9, it really details the life of Noah. This section, beginning in verse 9, actually begins a a new section in the book of Genesis. We know that because of this phrase in verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. That's a textual indicator from the author Moses that he's starting a new section and he's going to now, he's going to zero in on Noah, he's going to zero in on the flood and the building of the ark, and then he's going to zero in on this new world that is going to be birthed after the flood. We're going to work through the the story of Noah in a few chunks. The first portion we'll look at today will deal with the preparation for and the coming of the flood. 
And here what we're going to see is what many scholars call a decreation event. Following on the heels of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see now is that the world is so rebellious, so wicked, that God is actually going to wipe the slate clean. He's going to decreate what he has once created. And then what we see next week is that he's going to recreate. He's going to purge and cleanse the earth. And the new world that he's going to birth after the flood is going to begin with one man, one man who alone has found favor, as verse 8 told us last week, in the eyes of God. He has found grace in the eyes of God. Jewish literature celebrated Noah's place in history as a paragon of righteousness, a person to be emulated. And so we already have a book, a Dare to be Daniel. So if I was to write a book of this section of scripture, here's what I would call it, need to be a Noah. Because I think that's exactly what the text wants us to see. It wants us to see how important Noah is. And and it really wants to hold up Noah as a person of righteousness. Somebody who has enduring faith in the face of degenerate times. And, And yes, this is what the scriptures teach. We need to be a Noah. We need to be different to be godly. We need to be different than the world around us because we too have found, if you're in Christ today, you found favor and grace from God. This passage tells us in many ways how to be like Noah. And the purpose of that is to avoid the judgment of God. So if you want to avoid the judgment of God, like Noah, you actually need four crucial characteristics to define you. Here's the first one. You need unwavering character displaying the righteousness of God. We'll pick up in verse 9 and and we'll see this very clearly, very quickly. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Short and to the point, but Moses immediately provides us some rare, especially for Hebrew narrative, but significant character description. He tells us three things in particular about Noah. Noah was first a righteous man. Noah was secondly blameless in his generation. And third, Noah walked with God. And the words here characterize Noah in a kind of ascending order. He was righteous. What exactly does that mean? What is righteousness? Well, righteousness can be understood in a couple of different ways. It can be understood as being perfect, without sin. And clearly that's not what this is indicating about Noah here. He was, like everyone else on the face of the earth, a sinner. The Bible teaches that there are none righteous, no, not one. There's not one person who's ever walked the face of this earth apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who could be called perfectly righteous. Righteousness here is not the same as sinlessness. 
A righteous person is one who seeks to be holy. They long to be holy like God, but they realize they're not, that they're a sinner. They understand that they're going to fail, they're going to fall, they're going to sin. But here's the the key here, okay? When they do, they repent and they seek God for forgiveness and grace. That, in one sense, is the mark of a righteous person. There's a a deep recognition of who they truly are in light of the perfect righteousness of God. But they still long for that. They want to look like God in his perfection and beauty. And they realize that they never will this side of heaven. And so what they do when they see their sin is they bring it to the throne of grace. They lay it down at the foot of God and they say, God, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I am not who I ought to be. He was blameless. Again, you you might get the impression that indicates that that he somehow had some kind of moral perfection, but that's not what this means here. It does indicate a moral uprightness, an integrity. Think of a person who is not perfectly blameless, but has incredible integrity, that strength of character, that they're just unwavering. Nothing can make them compromise their convictions. They do their best to act appropriately in every situation. Noah here is a man who is walking with integrity of heart. And lastly there, he walked with God. This was only mentioned before of Enoch, specifically in chapter 5, 22 and 24. And this is indicating for us that Noah is of the same righteous lineage of Seth, both by physical descent, by moral conduct, and by godly faith. So when we hear that Noah was was righteous, blameless, and that he walked faithfully, we're being told that by grace alone, through faith alone, he was a repentant sinner who sought to be holy and walk in the presence of God. He longed for intimate relationship with God. And I want you to see here how this character description of Noah, it actually stands out in sharp contrast to the violence, lawlessness, and godlessness of his contemporaries. You'll notice the phrase, in his generation. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That is, compared to everybody else, Noah looked radically different. And I want you to see too here how Moses kind of draws this this parallel or this contrast between between Noah and his generation. Three descriptions of Noah and look, three descriptions of his generation. Did you catch the word that just leaps off the page? The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Here is Noah who is righteous and blameless and walking with God and here is everyone else in all the world who is corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Through and through. They love perversion and immorality. We saw that last week. Violence characterizes their existence. They take what they want, when they want, and they do it how they want. They're not looking out for their neighbor. They're not loving God or others. They love only themselves. They want what the flesh wants. And they're willing to go to extremes to get it. This approval of Noah, again, is not saying that he is sinless, but that he does not behave as the wicked 
people of his day. He stands out from his contemporaries as a man of right conduct who as a result enjoys a right relationship with God during a day of unrestrained wickedness and evil. One author says it like this, Noah is a reproach to the believer who surrenders to the allurement of a sinful generation. He maintains his fidelity and purity when all others have followed the pack. Think of it like this. You've seen um, maybe in movies or shows, hopefully you don't know this personally, you've seen a criminal lineup. You've never been a part of that, right? Where, where, where what they do is in order to identify a criminal sometimes where they're not really sure, you know, the witness isn't quite sure who the person is, they'll bring in a bunch of people who look very similar in order for the person to be able to kind of spot maybe who they think they saw, to be able to kind of look at a bunch of people who look similar, to spot the difference, to go like, yes, that's, that's the individual. Well, if you were to line up all of the criminals, which is all of the world in Noah's day, which is likely at this point billions of people, much like today, the whole lineup, there's only one person who would stand out. And here's the crazy thing. He would stand out like a sore thumb. Like one of these things is not like the other. And it's very, very obvious. It wasn't even close. So here's my question as we just kind of think about that illustration for a moment. Do you stand out in the lineup of your generation? Do we stand out in the midst of our generation where there is depravity and wickedness and sometimes unrestrained evil? Are we standing out, listen, specifically because of our righteousness, our blamelessness, and because of our walking with God? Or, or would people have a hard time picking us out of the lineup? Would we just blend right into the world? Is, is our life so similar? The way we operate, the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak. Are we more enamored with the world than with God and therefore we're more like the world than like God? Our objective is not to blend in, but to, to stick out, so to speak. This is the, the call of Scripture on the Christian life. To be in the world, but not of the world, we need to be a Noah. That's what the text is telling us. Our natural drift, because of our, our sinful nature, is to blend in. We don't want to be different. We don't want to stick out. That, that's That's uncomfortable. Much of this depends on what we're not willing to do, by the way. It's kind of what I want to focus on in this first point. I think Noah stands out in his generation because of what he's not willing to participate in, what he's not willing to engage in, what he's not willing to tolerate in his own life, what he's not willing to celebrate in the culture at large. He, he sticks out because of his refusal to get on board with the ways of the world that are antithetical to the ways of God. I was thinking a little bit about this. Um, some of the things that maybe are commonplace in our world that, that the world looks now at Christians in the church and they just think we're so strange. We're so weird. 
And you know what? The more concerned about holiness you become in your own life, do you realize this? The weirder, the stranger you're going to look in our world and our culture. And here's what's going to happen, right? Like, like think about things like this, like marriage and, and sexuality. Like, gone are the days where you get married before you live with somebody. It's actually very, people don't understand this in our culture. It's very strange. Like, well, you got to test out the relationship, see how compatible you are before you get married. That's to say nothing of all of the sexual immorality before marriage that the Bible prohibits. I mean, tell somebody that you're still a virgin before you get married and they'll laugh you out of the room. Or how about just staying married? <laughs> That's almost a joke in our culture. In our day and age, and, and I think in the future ahead of us, it's going to be increasingly more obvious who is with God and who is not with God. Our, our culture is not going to let us kind of shrink into the shadows any longer. Uh, cancel culture, I hate to tell you, this is coming for you, Christian. You're going to get canceled, okay? And, and by the way, this is even going to happen in the church. The more concerned you are about holiness, sometimes you're going to ruffle feathers with your friends. You're going to ruffle feathers in your church community. You're going to be told, you're, you're a little bit too uptight, okay? You're too serious. Uh, don't, you know, you're, you're a little holier than thou, or you're a little bit judgmental. Relax a little bit. Have, have some fun. Listen, I'm a firm believer, by the way, that we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. I'm a firm believer in that, but we ought to take our holiness very seriously. The scriptures say, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. In fact, flipping your Bible to 2 Corinthians, just flip forward. It's really interesting to me, you know, the, the people of God have always been told you're going to be strange, you're going to be weird. In fact, the way God designed Israel to function in the world was intended to highlight that they were a peculiar people. They didn't look like everybody else. They didn't do things the way everybody else did because their God was not like everybody else's God. And Paul, he, he brings forward some of these Old Testament concepts into a, a New Testament Christian context in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 14. We often apply this to like Christians shouldn't date non-Christians, and, and I think that's true, but this is not what this passage is primarily talking about. This is talking about a lifestyle. This is talking about how you operate in a world that doesn't know God or love God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, we, the church, the people of God, listen, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he quotes here from Leviticus, the law that was supposed to make the people of God peculiar, unique, and different. Listen to what it says. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Think of Noah here. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You say, what does this look? What is he talking about? Here it is. Look. 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Get rid of sin. Flee immorality. Separate yourself from the thinking of the world, from the ways of the world. Do not blend in. Do not embrace and love what they embrace and love. The things that are contrary to God in his word. Listen, in Christianity, being weird isn't necessarily a bad thing. It may actually mean you're doing the right thing. Parents, let your kids know it's okay to be weird as a Christian. Like, I'm not saying, like, listen, if you're weird just because you're weird, that's, that's a different story. I, like... I mean, for, for like holiness and righteousness and the things that you won't participate in, like that kind of weirdness. And if you get called weird because you're a Christian, because, because of the way you live your life for, G, for God and for his honor and his glory, guess what? You're in good company. I'm pretty sure that nobody in his generation thought Noah was the cool guy. And guess what? He didn't care. Probably being bullied by the Nephilim all the time. <laughs> we should stay, here's what we need to see from Noah. Listen, we should stand out for our refusal to be like the world. We should be unashamed and unwavering in our character. We are not of this world. Just like Jesus was not of this world. His, this is what he said. My kingdom is not of this world. He's different, fundamentally different. And we display the righteousness of our king when we live like him in this world. We should stand out for our refusal to participate and to enjoy violence or immorality or hatred or slander or malice or complaining or ingratitude or false worship or selfish, sinful ways. In how we say no to the ways of the world and no to the passions of our flesh, we will stand out, we will look different, and that is okay. Paul said it like this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to be in Noah with unwavering character, displaying the righteousness of God. Secondly, in order to avoid the judgment of God like Noah, you need unrelenting commitment, obeying the word of God. This is the flip side of the coin here. It's not just about saying no to the world. Listen, listen loved one, it is about saying yes to the word and will of God. It is not enough to just say, I'm not going to participate in these things. You must say yes to what God says you must do, to what you must be. Those who are declared righteous by God not only refuse to live in sin, they love to live in obedience to God. I want you to notice this is exactly what Noah demonstrates, this unrelenting commitment obeying the word of God. Let's pick back up at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He's given instructions for the building of the ark, and I just want you to to notice that they're detailed and specific. Many scholars have noted here the similarities between Noah and Moses, particularly when, when God gives to Moses instructions for building the tabernacle. You know, all those detailed instructions that you kind of glance over, all the poles and curtains and ringlets, every little thing, you're like, okay, why all this detail? Part of the reason is this, because God wants things done exactly the way he says. And there's a a striking parallel here between not only the instructions that are given to Noah and to Moses, but their response. I want you to see this. The response is to do the exact same thing. They did everything the Lord commanded. By the way, the only other time that the word ark is used in the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament, is also in relation to Moses, where Moses is is placed in a a little basket. The, The word in Hebrew is an ark. And he's sent off into the waters of the Nile to save the people of God. We're supposed to see some illusions here. But I, I want you to pay particular attention as well to verse 18. Did you, did you catch that amidst all the instructions? You're like, what is it that anchors Noah to do this crazy project that the Lord has given him, here it is, but I will establish my covenant with you. He he, he uses the word covenant here, the first time this word is officially used in the book of Genesis, but, but it's used almost as if he already understands the idea and the concept of a covenant, that God enters into a binding relationship with human beings whereby he commits himself to them in his steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's saying to Noah, Noah, you can do what I'm telling you to do. You can do it exactly the way I'm telling you to do it because of the one thing you can be certain of in all of this life, and that is this, me and my character. I am the God of steadfast covenant faithfulness. I will love you till the end. What I say I will do, I will do. I will come through, Noah. I will save you and your family. You just do what I'm telling you to do and trust that I'll do the rest. 
the promise of God's word, here's what you need to see, okay? This is so true for, for Noah, it's true for us. The promise of God's word is the sustenance and strength of his people. It's what anchors us in the midst of the storm. It's what anchors us when everything feels uncertain and confusing, where we're unsettled and unsure. It's the promises of God. I love this because here's the deal in the Christian life. It's not about how tightly we're holding on to God. It's about how tightly he promises to hold on to us. That's what matters. I love that, that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because sometimes I'm not holding fast at all. Sometimes I'm like, I, I'm not holding on at all. Like if, if, if it wasn't God holding on, I would plummet to the depths. And one commentator says this, in, in light of this covenant to Noah, he says, just think about this, Noah had this one covenant and, and reaching back to, to Adam in the garden and what he knew of God's faithfulness. Our advantage, this commentator says, is incomparable because we have all the promises of the vast corpus of God's word. We have incalculably more promises that have been given to us in the scriptures. And he goes on to say, and more than that, they are all yes and amen in Christ. We, we not only, listen church, we not only have the promises, we have the fulfillment, we have Christ. And he says this, how much greater then should our obedience be? God says, Noah, build an ark. Here's the blueprint. Now, by the way, if, if you haven't um, been out to see the ark encounter, if you really, you know, I won't go into all the detail. You can watch these videos. You can go to Kentucky and, uh, and see the ark for yourself. They've got a life-size version of the ark there. Uh, here's what you need to know. This is unbelievably big. This is the, the length of one and a half football fields. And, and that feels big in our modern context. Can you imagine what it would have felt like in an ancient context? He says, I'm going to save you, to protect you. I'm going to provide for you, but I'm not going to do it. This is the crazy part. I'm not going to do it apart from you, Noah. You must participate in this plan. I'll bring the animals and you get the food ready. I want you to pay attention to that statement again in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. It's really interesting. In these kind of epic accounts, in the scriptures like the flood, these narrative accounts, oftentimes the author uses repetition of words and phrases, and that's how he most clearly communicates his main ideas. It's like he's taking out a highlighter or punctuating the sentence for us to pay closer attention. And I just want you to see this. Just drop down to chapter 7, verse 5 really quickly. Just notice what it says. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Look over to verse 9. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah. Look at this. As God had commanded Noah. Drop down to verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. This refrain of obedience represented Noah's long life. He did all that God commanded him. He was a man who, who knew who God was. He knew who he himself was, and he obeyed God's word. We, we often said to our kids growing up when it came to obedience, um, you know, true and, and God-pleasing obedience is obeying uh, right away, all the way from the heart. That's a really important piece. 
And I think that that should apply to, to most of us as Christians. Don't, I think that we, could, we would do well to repeat that phrase to our own hearts all the time. God-pleasing obedience is obedience right away, all the way, with a happy heart, a joyful heart. You see, the message here is that God must be obeyed in all his instructions if his people expect to enjoy the fruit of life and blessing. And here in Noah, we see this monumental and meticulous obedience. This is what I think Paul, the apostle, in Romans 1.5 calls the obedience of faith. It's a faith that's so strong in God, it produces a life of obedience. And that is the opposite of a life of disobedience and sin. A Martin Lloyd-Jones said that sin is refusal to listen to the voice of God. Sin, he says, is a turning of your back upon God and doing what you think. I think very often in the Christian life, we obey mainly or only when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, and when it's compensating. When it's easy and when we feel like there's going to be a, a, a good payout for us. Like what, what immediate benefit do I derive from this? We, we often struggle or, or we, we don't obey the right way all the way. And, and we certainly struggle at times to obey with a happy heart. And look, obeying God is, is not always easy. I mean, imagine, imagine this kind of obedience for Noah, the task at hand, how long it was going to take. I mean, how, how many Noah jokes do you think people could come up with in a century? He, he's got he's to just keep obeying. Like, like all the ridicule, all the mocking, all the scoffing. I mean, knock, knock. It's okay, you can answer. Still Noah. I made that up. You like that? That's good. <laughs> Think about the unrelenting commitment to the word of God this would require, right? right? Here he is doing exactly what God said for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. He's still doing it. And God hasn't allowed a drop of rain to fall. The flood is still not coming. And here he is, just chugging away until the ark lays like a huge coffin on the land. And by the way, I don't think he's building right next to the ocean, right? It's in the middle of like nowhere. How are you going to get that thing to the ocean, Noah? Don't worry, God's going to bring the ocean to me. You see, so now we're beginning to see what it means to be righteous. See, the righteous person rests everything on the word of God with this unrelenting commitment, obeying it even and especially as the culture marches the other way. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he said, understand this, that in the last days, that's, that's right now, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Just, just listen to this. Second Peter, just listen. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Noah exemplifies for us what it looks like to live in light of the coming judgment of God. Holiness, godliness, unwavering commitment and obedience. And it's fair to hold him up right now even as a mirror for your own life and ask the question, how am I stacking up? How am I doing? Do I take God's word seriously enough to be meticulous about obedience to do all that the Lord commands? Am I willing to, to do everything the Lord commands, to go all the way, to do it right away, and to do it with a heart filled with joy because, because he is so worthy? If you're like me, there are plenty of areas that need growth. All I need to do is read again through the fruit of the Spirit to be convicted. But we need to be a Noah. This long obedience in the same direction in order to avoid the judgment of God. Third, like Noah, you need unflinching conviction, trusting the power of God. Chapter 7, we pick up the story again. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. We're, we're anticipating here the sacrifice that he's going to make and the sacrificial system that is going to come. The, the male and his mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, two incredibly important numbers there in the scriptures. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Noah had the, the unflinching conviction that God was about to judge the world. Although the obedience of Noah is important in the flood account, what we need to see here is that the salvation of Noah and his family and the animals comes from God alone. 
In fact, uh, commentator Alan Ross says this. He says, the image that emerges from the portrait of Noah in the narrative is that of a righteous and faithful remnant, patiently waiting for God's deliverance. He goes on to say, Noah's venture to build his vessel upon dry land while awaiting the impending floodwaters is exemplary of a person trusting in what cannot be seen or proven. And he loads up the ark because he believes the flood is coming. God said it, I believe it. No matter how long it takes, I'm going to trust God. And, and guess what? It came. It took a hundred years, but it came. Look at verse 6. Noah was 600 years old. He started when he was 500. The floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. There, there is a clear here reversal of Genesis 1 in the flood. In Genesis 1, God takes what is formless and void, what is uninhabitable, and he makes it into a cosmos. But in the flood, God destroys the cosmos so that it reverts back to the chaotic condition of being uninhabitable for both humans and animals. It shouldn't be surprising here to see all kinds of allusions to Genesis chapter 1 in these chapters of Genesis even the mention of in seven days, it, it, it possibly alludes to the, the seven days of creation. Almost like God's saying, I'm going to recreate everything. But we see here first the, the conviction of Noah in the power of God to judge the wicked. He believed wholeheartedly that God was a holy, righteous judge, that one day he would come and he would judge the wicked for their rebellion and sin. And the violent nature of the total destruction of, of life on earth is emphasized in this flood account. Just, just listen to the language as we read through this in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Water just comes bursting from under the ground, just flying up everywhere. This deluge of water from below and from above, this cataclysm kind of event and destruction. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. 
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils, listen to this allusion back to Genesis 1, was the breath of life died. And he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is a global catastrophe of which humanity has never seen or experienced and never will until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the power of God to judge. This is terrifying. It's staggering. The text, by the way, it's not concerned with explaining geography or mediography or paleontology or any other ology you want it to explain, okay? It is concerned rather to demonstrate what kind of man or woman God saves from judgment. And no one provides the answer for us. Hebrews 11 verse 7 identifies, again, Noah as a hero of the faith. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. You see, he trusted, yes, the power of God to judge, but don't miss this. He trusted the power of God to save. This was the only certainty he needed. Therefore, by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Listen, the moment that rain began to fall, he was already shut up inside the ark. All the world at that point knew that Noah's God was real. Noah's God spoke truth. And Noah's God would judge all who rebel against him. Every person knew and was condemned in that exact moment. And Noah's faith was vindicated. If you believe in the power of God to judge, if you believe Jesus is returning again to judge the living and the dead, how should this change the way you live? Holiness and godliness, yes. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 tells us a little bit more about how Noah chose to live. Look at what it says on the screen. It says this, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, look at what it says of him, a herald or a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You know what Noah did with his time while he was building the ark? He preached the righteousness of God. He, he almost certainly called the world to recognize their sin, to turn from their sin, to flee the wrath to come. Turn to Yahweh God. 
beg him for forgiveness. Acknowledge your sin. Repent. You don't think you're that bad. God, God is the standard of your holiness. God is the righteous one. You'll be measured by his perfection. And you don't have anything close to perfection. He's coming. The rain's going to fall. The flood's going to come. And you will be trapped and caught and doomed and damned for all eternity. Unless you bow the knee to the king of kings and the lord of lords. Do it now. And every person who heard the message shut their ears. They put their fingers in their ears. They laughed. They mocked. They scoffed. They kept walking in their sin. They kept walking in their own righteousness. They believed they were fine. They believed the judgment of God was never going to come. Just Jesus. He's never going to return. That's what they're going to say. And then in the blink of the eye, he's going to come. And the moment he shows up, it's too late. It's too late. When the rain started falling, the door was already shut. And listen, we have a responsibility, church. We know the judgment of God is coming. And knowing that should produce an urgency that fuels our mission. Not fueling our worldliness. Not fueling our desire to fit in. It's like watching somebody standing on a railroad track and, and looking at them with a train bearing down on them and just saying, man, I really hope somebody tells them about that train coming down those tracks. Really hope somebody does. It's us. It's us. It's us. And if you're here today, listen, and you, you don't know Jesus if... If you don't turn to him, you will be judged in your sin. You'll feel the full weight of the wrath of God for all eternity. And God in his kindness, God in his kindness is calling you today to flee the wrath to come and to run, listen, into the merciful arms of the Savior, Jesus. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Unflinching conviction, trusting in the power of God. Do you notice again, verse 16, who shuts the door? God does. God's the hero. God's the savior. The Lord is sovereign over the boat. He's sovereign over the flood. He's, it's only going to rain for exactly the amount of time he says it's going to. He'll let it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and no more. And I want you to notice that the ark was the vehicle of salvation. Noah had this unflinching conviction that he must get into the ark. He had the unflinching conviction that God must close the door. And he had the unflinching conviction that the ark could withstand the judgment of God. He was trusting in the power of God to save. And we need to be a Noah. We need to trust in God's power, yes, to judge, but yes, to save. And in order to avoid the judgment of God, listen, like Noah, you need this lastly, unmatched compassion, taking the judgment of God.
You see, what we see here is that salvation only comes through judgment. And Noah, like us, needed protection from the just judgment of God. We, like Noah, need an ark of salvation. And the New Testament actually tells us that baptism is a picture. Christian baptism is a picture of God's saving work, pointing us all the way back to the flood where, where God, Second Peter, tells us, I believe it would be on the screen there. Is that right? Or First Peter, excuse me, 3. Listen to what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism, he, he, he links it back there to this event of the flood in 1 Peter 3. And he uses baptism to refer to a figurative immersion. That's what the word baptism means. An immersion into Christ as the ark of safety that will sail through the torrential judgment of God upon the wicked. You see, no one and his family were immersed not just in water, but in the world under divine judgment. All the while they were protected by being in the ark. God preserved them in the midst of his judgment, which is what he also does for all those who trust in Christ. No one knew he needed refuge from the storm. He knew that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. His faith and his hope was in the salvation provided by God. Listen, we, we need to be in Noah, but more than that, we need what Noah needed. Noah needed God to save him through his unmatched compassion. He needed a savior who would take the judgment of God in his place, and that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. You see, the ark points us to Jesus. Jesus is an ark, which is why the New Testament makes such a big deal about us being in Christ. We're in him. He, he goes through the judgment waters for us. He hangs on the cross and receives the just judgment of God. God unleashes a deluge of wrath upon his son in our place. And if we are hidden in Christ, he receives all of that wrath for us. Noah got into the ark by faith, and it was the means of his salvation. Listen, by repentance and faith, we get into Christ, who is the ark of our salvation. And God himself shuts the door. God himself takes the judgment. God himself will bring us safely home. This is the only way to avoid the judgment of God. Look to Jesus, the only one with true and perfect, unwavering character who perfectly displayed the righteousness of God. Look to Jesus with his unrelenting commitment, perfectly obeying the word of God. Look to Jesus and his unflinching conviction, perfectly trusting the power of God. He, he is the one with unmatched compassion who takes the judgment of God for us that he might give to us a righteousness that is not of our own that we might be found righteous in him.
He died, but he rose. And he is coming back again. He alone is the hope of the ages. For our generation and for every generation. Father, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who not only know the saving power of the gospel, but those who proclaim it. God, that we would be like Noah in his righteousness, his blamelessness, in walking with you, Lord. We long to be more and more like that, and we look to Noah's Savior, to our Savior. We look to King Jesus, the one who is the hope of the ages, the one who has conquered sin and death, who took the judgment of God upon himself, but who rose victoriously over it all, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, all things subjected to him, all power, all authority, all might, all glory, all honor, all praise due to him and him alone. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would receive now our praises. May they flow out of grateful hearts for all that you are and all that you've done. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.